You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our Charity Champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. On this episode, the Children's Advocacy Center of Central Texas. Statistically, they say 90% of people that abuse children are known to the child in some kind of way. Our cases are 98%. Wow. Executive Director Michelle Carter tells us how her organization creates a brighter future for abused children. I would be very scared for these children and these families if these services were not available to them. And now, let's get to know our champion. Welcome to the Charity Champions Podcast. Today we have Michelle Carter here from the Children's Advocacy Center of Central Texas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. Just starting out, can we kind of have you maybe introduce yourself to people who don't know you? Absolutely. Again, my name is Michelle Carter. I'm the Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Central Texas. Um, I've been there since 1999, so a really long time. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. And so for people that don't know, what is the Children's Advocacy Center? Well, we're a nonprofit organization that coordinate a collaborative approach to child abuse cases with the efforts to provide protection, justice, and healing to children who have been victims of abuse. Um, Our ultimate goal is restoration for these families that find themselves in these adverse experiences. Kind of tell me about the situations that come up that would bring a child and their family to you guys. Our case criteria, we work very closely with law enforcement and Children's Protective Services in the district and county attorney's offices. And when I mentioned the collaborative part, and our case criteria is sexual abuse of any kind, severe physical abuse, and witness to violent crime. So the majority of our cases are going to have a law enforcement, potentially prosecution element to it, in addition to CPS. And so we got to come and visit your facilities in Belton. And I would say when I walked in, I felt it was a very like homey, calm environment. Is that by design? That's a big part of the model. We want kids to feel safe. They're talking about very difficult things. Majority of the time, it's people they love and trusted. And the majority of our cases are sexual abuse. And so we just want to create an environment that's comfortable and safe for them um, so they can talk to us about what has or hasn't happened to them. And so when a child comes in, what's kind of the process that you guys walk through when you're working with them? We get the referral initially from law enforcement or CPS when a child abuse allegation intake comes in. They schedule those interviews with the families or the protective caregivers. Those are the only folks that are allowed to bring the child to our center. We don't work with offending parents or perpetrators at all. And so the family and or caregivers and the child get there, and they're usually greeted by our family advocate, who's also going to be their advocate throughout the course of their case. At some point, they meet the forensic interviewer. They're shown the forensic interview room. They're told exactly what's going to happen, what they talk about they can't get in trouble for, um, that it's a safe place to talk. And then the interview takes place. And while the interview is going on, law enforcement and children Protective services are observing that interview from our observation room in a different part of the building. And then when that's done, usually those parties will have conversations with the caregivers about what are the steps moving forward. Do you have any sort of stats about like how common it is that 
kids are being abused in this way? More than 60,000 kids in the state of Texas last year. In our service area, which is Bell County, Coriel, and Milam County, we had more than 1,500 children confirmed victims of abuse. And in 2018, we served through our agency 812 children and their families. It's one of those things that's really hard to imagine those numbers are that big. It usually surprises people. Mm -hmm. Even when we go into the school system, which you'd think that teachers are knowledgeable about that these things do happen and they do happen to our children, they're usually quite surprised at the numbers that we see every year. And so there's that initial interview where law enforcement is nearby and they're kind of like taking notes and, and watching as well. How do you guys help kids kind of process this often traumatic experience they've been through? That's another big part of our model in our program. After a child has had their forensic interview and met with their family advocate, they then receive a therapy referral. We do in-house trauma-focused counseling for mostly children, but for caregivers as well. We utilize a modality called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been researched to prove that it does heal trauma in children. Because I mentioned at the beginning that the ultimate goal is restoration, Mm -hmm. and that's restoration of the child and of the family so that child can get back to a healthy, happy childhood. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that process and what it's kind of like and what kind of things you go through to kind of help them process this? The majority of the initial time in the counseling is focused on the child's trauma, and there are certain steps that the therapist uses to help that child process that trauma, and they teach them relaxation and coping skills to manage the, the adverse symptoms as a result of the trauma with the initial goal to have those symptoms decrease and hopefully go away. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, we see through the assessments that we do with kids about where they are on a trauma scale at the beginning and where they are on the end, um, that it's very high percentages of depression and anxiety and nightmares and the things that are a result of trauma, that those significantly decrease. So is that how you guys kind of gauge how much services the kid's going to get based on kind of like where they start at and then you do assessments throughout to see... Yes. How they're getting better? Yes, absolutely. At the very beginning, we do what's called a needs assessment, and that's as the family or the the caregivers and child as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, what those parents may need, what that child may need. And if we have some concerns that they're going to have trauma symptoms, we assess that at the front end. And then when they get into the therapy program, um, we use trauma symptom checklist to also then assess their progress otherwise. Um, We do sometimes see kids in therapy that maybe aren't ready to talk in their forensic interview, but there's enough information and evidence there that we feel fairly certain that something really bad has happened to them. And so that process with them is a little bit more rapport building and exploratory, trying to get them to a comfortable place. When these things happen, it's done in shame and secrecy. And it's very difficult sometimes for kids to open up. As I mentioned, for us, statistically, they say 90% of people that abuse children are known to the child in some kind of way. Our cases are 98%. Wow. Our family member, somebody that they know, someone that was able to gain their trust. And so it's very difficult sometimes. You know, one of the things, if we want to talk about certain cases, the children that end up 
going to trial and having to testify against a family member. One particular case comes to mind, a biological father who sexually abused this young girl for years, that it takes a lot of restoration and it takes a lot of courage. And we know that when we're able to provide these services, if that day comes, if that is the end result, that kid has the courage to testify and feels good that they testified and stood up for themselves at that point. Oftentimes at the beginning, there's no way they could do that. Mm-hmm. And that results typically in very good outcomes from a prosecution end. The one case in particular I'm thinking about, the biological father got 50 years. Wow. I'm assuming that every kid's different and some may come in and be ready to talk about everything and some may take multiple sessions, right? We do do something called a multi-session forensic interview. It is counted as one interview, but we assess on the front end if we think that that's going to be a possibility. And then they may meet with that child two or three or four times in shorter increments. They may take a break the day of and come back 30 minutes later. They may come back the next day. But yes, and then some kids come in and they're ready to talk. And a lot of that we assess based on how the outcry came out. Mm. If the child made the outcry to a teacher or to a family, friends, you know, a trusted adult, which is what we recommend to teach your child to do, that we know that they're in a different position. Whereas if It's more like an accidental outcry. Mm. Somebody walked in on something or somebody overheard the child talking um, about a situation um, that might indicate that they're being abused. And then again, we go back to the dynamics of the family come into play. Mm -hmm. And even though a horrible thing is happening to these children, they still want to protect what they perceive as the people that love them, despite the fact that they're harming them. And so... In those instances, children don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about it. And kids are also very savvy. They know what's going to happen if they make these statements. Mm -hmm. And that most likely means a fracture of their family of sorts, Mm -hmm. whether that be an uncle, a grandfather, a parent, the family best friend, you know, whatever the situation is. And they don't want to see their family fractured. How do you get them to have that courage to kind of take a stand and, and do what's right for them? Part of the process is the environment. We knew back way in the day when kids would have to go to police stations, they feel like they're in trouble. If they have to go to CPS offices, those are sterile, you know, type environments that just don't make a child feel like something good is about to happen to them. And when we go back and read um, our initial caregiver surveys, the biggest theme that we see is my child felt safe. My child felt comfortable. We felt very welcomed. And the interviewers are specifically trained to talk to kids about this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which is why it's so important for kids to get forensic interviews by a trained interviewer. Police investigators are highly trained and highly capable of certain things as our CPS workers, and they're all well-intended, but they don't have the knowledge that our forensic interviewers bring to the table about how you obtain information that would hold up in a case in a way that's child-friendly, that's non-leading. We lead the kid down a narrative path, ask as few questions as possible that are direct, and really want that child just to give a narrative story about their experiences. And there's rapport building that happens, you know, then it just takes its natural course with the skill of the forensic interviewer. A lot of times my son or daughter might tell me some things that I think seem a little far-fetched. So having someone who's trained to really know what to look for and what to ask and, and how to say it in such a way that doesn't make them feel shame, but also empowers them to tell the whole story, right? Absolutely. 
And it is like an onion. And mm. most of the time, we also know that what kids say, even in a really good forensic interview, probably isn't all that even needs to be said. Mm. And so kind of talking about the experience again, you guys have like items you give them as they leave to kind of help them feel more comforted as well? Yes, we do give them, we call them care bags. They do get that after they do their forensic interview. And it's just kind of a supportive bag for them to, to bring them some comfort. It usually has a stuffed animal and a blanket, maybe a book. If it's an older child, it may have some, some toiletries or the thing, you know, the things that those older kids like. Mm -hmm. And the parents and them appreciate it. It makes them feel like what just happened was okay yeah. and and they need to know that you mentioned that it's it's more than just the child who is affected and that it's sometimes the whole family that needs help so how do you guys help a whole family especially in a situation where you know things may change soon one thing that is inevitable is every single one of our parents has different needs. They come from all socioeconomic backgrounds. So for some of them have financial needs. They have like needing their basic needs met in order to get on that path to restoration. Oftentimes, families have sexual abuse histories of their own mm -hmm. that they have to cope with so that then they can turn around and cope with their child's situation. And then a lot of times for parents, it's just information. It's relaying information because we're talking to all the partners. Law enforcement and CPS workers are completely overloaded on their caseloads. And so if we need to gain information for that parent, call that officer, that investigator, that worker, we can do that for them and assist them. And then also educating them on what are the adverse effects of child abuse, but then these are the things we do to change those adverse effects for your child and give them hope that you won't be in crisis forever. Right. And your child can heal, children are resilient, your child can be restored as can you through this process. And, and again, some of them need their domestic violence situation. So we need to find them shelter. I mean, we have uh, our family advocates are like the resource queens. Um, <laughs> if a family needs something physically, emotionally, financially, they can assist them in, in getting those needs met to bring more stability within the family. And as we were talking when we visited, you guys had lots of really good success stories about people you were able to help. Do you have any more of those stories you'd like to talk about or, or revisit that we talked about previously? I feel like every child we see, regardless of what the outcome is or what the situation is, is a success story course, for yes. us. I know that's a little cliche, <laughs> but it really is, really is true. Like the case I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I think that for us, where we really relish in our success stories is the kids that we do see thrive, benefit, and be restored by being able to access all of our services. Mm -hmm. Every service we provide has an important place in the cases, but the ones that kind of keep us going and are those ones where we really do see these children's lives change and they are able to be courageous and stand up for themselves and have those positive results of something that really bad happened. One of our mottos is we can't change what happened but we can change what happened next mm. and it's everything from you know a young lady that we saw who was much older I believe she was 17 at the time she came to see us was raped at work by her manager mm. and she couldn't go to work for months and 
through the process of her healing and restoration, her anxiety almost completely went away. She was able to get back to normal functioning. Her perpetrator was held accountable to the point that he isn't going to hurt anybody else in that environment anytime soon. And so that happens with all the children almost that we see that have been traumatized Mm -hmm. in these awful ways. But then we also have kids that come in and maybe their families are fractured and there's some things going on and they're not going to have super severe trauma symptoms. But then we can still help those kids in ways that are really good. We have a program also called Safe Space that we do one or two times a year. And we had a young lady. This was a violent crime story. Hmm. Her father stabbed her mother in their home with her there. And it was a really horrible situation. Luckily, her mother lived. We picked that child because the family was having such difficulty living in their environment where they were both traumatized. However, they didn't have options necessarily to move. And so we came into their home and basically did a redo of their kitchen where the event happened, the little Mm. girl's bedroom, a makeover, so to speak. And the parents wrote us, the mother and the child wrote us amazing letters in return just about how much that meant to them to take kind of that next step to put their trauma behind them. Yeah. If they have to walk through that room every single day. It's It's a trigger. And when you're healing and you have to look at a trigger all the time, it makes it a little bit hard. Why is it so important for kids, if they're going through these issues, to see somebody and get that help and kind of deal with it rather than just kind of saying, that's something that happened to me, that's part of my my story, but I'm trying to move past it without the proper counseling? These are rooted in shame and secrecy, and that is really what makes um, sexual abuse cases extremely difficult because psychologically they're very complex. These children are groomed. They often think that the perpetrator loves them. We had a kindergarten case where these kids thought they were going to marry their teacher. And they were little kids. And also, oftentimes, kids, they may know in their deep inside that something's not right. But oftentimes, they're not even understanding that what's happening to them is wrong Mm. until someone tells them otherwise. We go out and do education in the schools. And oftentimes, when kids sit through that safe bodies and stuff like that, they go, oh, wait a second. Mm. I need to tell somebody this is happening because now I'm being told it's not right. And so there's lots of different reasons. Again, I mentioned earlier, um, they don't want to fracture their fractured family any more than it's already fractured. And they will protect um, that because they know that that means mother's going to be upset with them because now the breadwinner has to be taken out of the home. Um, or, you know, that's mother's father, that's grand grandfather, um, and they don't want to take that burden. They'd rather just carry the burden yeah. and think that they can move on without getting getting proper intervention. But we know that there's a correlation between major medical problems later in life and not having any kind of proper intervention um, to people who are survivors that never got it. And then, of course, we hear about people who have a trauma and then they have trouble building relationships when they're older and stuff and having trouble trusting men or other issues like that, right? You see that. You see substance abuse, higher suicide rate, higher criminology rate. Promiscuity in young adulthood is very common because that kind of special innocence of sexual activity has been taken away from them. If those things aren't resolved when their children, it's going to manifest itself in adulthood in a not real pretty way. Also, when we toured your facility, you had 
a building across the street where you're helping people. Can you kind of talk about that facility and how that connects to your mission? That actually is our therapy building. Excellent. So we do all of our therapy services in the Hope House, which is right next door to our main facility. So our main facility operates the forensic interviewing, the family advocacy, and the coordination of the team and intake review. We also do outreach and education in that department. The Department of One <laughs> is is housed um, in the main building. That's most nonprofits, I feel like. Right. It's always a Department of One, right? <laughs> and then the Hope House, right now it has two large therapy offices and a waiting room and a meeting room. Um, but we're about to expand that to another waiting room and therapy room. So we're pretty excited about that. How do you guys get your funding? We get our funding primarily through state and federal grants and local community fundraising. If people wanted to help you out, what's the best way to do that? As all nonprofits do, we have huge monetary needs. Um, mm -hmm. We have a quite a large bit of our budget that does have to be raised in the community. We have a blue envelope annual campaign that kicks off in November every year. And that's a combination of an awareness and a giving campaign. The campaign theme this year is every child deserves protection, justice, and healing. And so we distribute blue envelopes all throughout the community. And we just ask people to think about supporting our mission in that way. Every dollar counts from the $20 donation to the $1,000 donation. Our goal this year is to raise enough to pay off our primary building. So we have a big, healthy blue envelope goal of about $60,000. Okay. So that's exciting to, to hope that we can get to that goal. And then within that campaign, we also have an event called Designer Bag Bingo at Wildflower Country Club. And it's just a fun event. Mostly ladies come. We get a few men there. Win a purse for your wife. There you go. Come and play bingo and win designer handbags, and that supports the Blue Envelope campaign. And then other needs that we have is we talked about the care bags, so we're always in need of those things to put inside those care bags. We keep snacks and juice boxes on site for families. We also have a rainbow room that keeps additional things stocked, clothing, food. If families are getting displaced and they have some immediate needs while they're at our building, they can take what they need there. And so those are just a few things. But attending our events, asking to have outreach and education come and present to your company, to we will go anywhere to talk about the issue of child abuse and what we can do to keep kids safe. Schools, churches, Sunday schools, schools. churches. We'll go anywhere. We've even done some stuff with some corporate entities that okay. just want to educate their employees on recognizing and reporting and keeping their own kids safe. So we also like to, because you are a charity champion this year, we like to ask our charity champions to really shoot for the moon, really think about some of the bigger things you want for the future, how you see things going. As you're here on the podcast and when you're recognized on the field during the Baylor game, what's something that you would like to let people know is a big goal of yours and, and something you want for the future of your organization? Absolutely. Well, I mentioned before about our goal of attempting to pay off the building that we're in. Mm -hmm. But as we look ahead and look to the future from a capacity perspective, I would say probably our biggest need is going to continue to be our building, which is such a big part of our services. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the core part of the model and how we're able to do what we do. Dreaming big, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> it might look like a beautiful plot of land or it might look like a building or it might look like a remodel. Mm -hmm. But I would say coming in the near future, those are definitely 
from a challenge perspective and certainly from a monetary perspective, that's probably one of our biggest needs. Mm -hmm. We really can't grow anymore with the capacity we have right now. The last question I have for you, the work you do is really difficult. You've been doing it for a very long time. What keeps you going? What keeps you passionate about this kind of work? Well, I think I touched on it before. We really focus on how every single child can be a success despite the fact what's happened to them. We can't change what happened, but we can change what happens next. Mm-hmm. I think most of the people in our big collaborative group knows that that's really the only way you can keep going. Mm -hmm. That if you focus on the horribleness of why we get to do what we do, then you will very quickly burn out and be very sad (laughs) and crazy probably. And so we really just try to focus on every step a family takes or every healing that happens as a success to keep us doing what we're doing and thinking about I would be very scared for these children and these families if these services were not available to them. I mean, that is a world I do not want to think about. Yeah. You know, in a sense, somebody has to do this work and somebody has to do it passionately because it's so important for our community and our society and and what we know about the adverse effects of child abuse to think that there's not options to help our world with those is something that has to keep you going. Yeah. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for the great work you guys are doing in the community. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampions.org and look for the Nominate button at the top of the page. You can also find more information on this podcast and all Charity Champions at charitychampions.org. We'll see you next time.